we're back with another episode of Gladio Free, or Bomb Rush and Sam, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Liam. Hello. My good buddy, Kevin. Hello, everyone. How's it going? For today, we're going to talk about uh, Afghanistan. We were inspired by events which recently transpired, and so we wanted to look a bit into how America got involved in Afghanistan. And so we uh, we happen to remember uh, this 2007 mega-hit movie called Charlie Wilson's War. I'm sure that uh, all of you were t- rushing to get to the movie theater to watch that one. For those of you who haven't seen it, this movie, Charlie Wilson's War, stars Tom Hanks cast totally against type as this playboy Texas congressman who took a break from gallivanting with strippers in Las Vegas to deeply invest himself in the war effort against the Soviets in Afghanistan. This single representative from basically a backwater part of eastern Texas ended up being really personally involved, raising money, directly contacting Mujahideen anti-Soviet forces. And the movie's really interesting because you could, in a sense, see it as mythologizing the origin of this long-term trend of Islamist militias within Afghanistan that today have come to a type of level of success that presumably people like Charlie Wilson never expected or intended to happen. Although the movie does end on a very bitter note. (laughs) It does, and we'll get into that. But you know, what do you guys think of this movie as a movie? Do you think it was, was it worthwhile? Was it fun? I had an awful time. I would not recommend. Like, this was written by Aaron Sorkin, so, like, you already know what you're in for. It's, I will say, it's more tolerable than a lot of Aaron Sorkin. But what do you think, Kevin? So, I, I had seen the movie a while ago. I rewatched it because of you guys, so you're welcome. I thought it was a wonderful piece of propaganda. I mean, Tom Hanks is such a great propaganda piece because he's a very likable guy. And you do get the sense that he's a playboy being sort of rehabilitated, uh, redeeming himself through the help of these very, you know, uh, likable uh, people that you empathize, empathize with. And it's great to show, you know, the the horrors of Soviet interference versus the wonders that American influence, so, totally selfless influence can do to the world. And of course, these very like subtle foreshadowings of the evil that is about to come. Because in the, in the end, they show this like, strategic errors and problems with government bureaucrats that can see the end game uh, because they're obviously talking about 9-11. But it shows, you know, this really idealized role of the U.S. government in a very Aaron Sorkin-like way. In addition to starring Tom Hanks, who, again, he's against type, but he really does a good job playing this playboy. It's a pretty good cast because you also have Julia Roberts playing Joanne Herring, who's this kind of right-wing socialite who really helps... Charlie Wilson get involved. And then you have maybe the most interesting character in the movie, Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, the late great thespian. He stars as this guy, Gust Avakratos, who is this Greek-American CIA agent who is passed over for promotion, who gets involved working on the Afghan desk after not getting a job he wanted, supposedly because of racism, basically. You know, it was a anti-Greek bias. You know, all the all the wasps and Mormons in the CIA didn't trust white ethnics in 1980. Yeah, there's this great scene that's probably the best scene in the movie where he's arguing with his boss about this, and he just sardonically remarks that clearly the CIA has a problem with people who speak the language. Yeah, <laughs> the languages of the places they're looking at, yeah. I think yeah, he wanted Finland, but because he doesn't get that, he works at the much less interesting, what he thought would be the much less interesting Afghan desk. But uh, I guess while we're on the subject, that seems like a, as good a time as any to talk about just the nation of Afghanistan, which really 
plays such a central role in the film. What I think is a little bit telling um, about the filmmakers and their intentions is that even though this film is all about Afghanistan, you learn very little about Afghan culture and customs. Very few Afghan characters even speak. And when they do, it's usually just um, being interviewed about their country. I don't think any Afghan character has is, it really is a fully-fledged character who appears in more than one scene. Yeah, no, not at all. The only ones who speak are refugees in the camp who just talk about the ways they've been victimized by the Soviets. Yeah, which I think really shows kind of the, the perspective of the filmmakers here. Uh, of course, what, what they don't show is that, you know, Afghanistan has an unbelievably ancient history. Honestly, more ancient than anywhere in Europe, I would say, going back almost as far as the Sumerians in terms of how long they've had, just how long there's a history of urbanized civilizations in Central Asia. It's famously the crossroads of civilization. You have, you know, Greek and Hindu influences. Of course, later on, you have, you know, the Turkic and Mongolic influences in the Middle Ages. Very early uh, during the times of the Arab caliphs, it became Islamic, you know, I would say that uh, since like the 7th or 8th century, the Afghan identity has basically been an inherently Islamic identity, but it's also very close to Iran. A very big portion of the country of Afghanistan, especially the Hazaras, I believe, actually speak Persian. Isn't that right? Yeah, well, Persian has been the prestige language of Afghanistan for a very long time. And even to this day, like only a minority of Pashtuns actually speak Pashto. Most of them speak Dari as a first language. Well, tell us about the Pashtuns. I know they're the primary ethnic group. And they've really kind of been like sort of the main characters throughout much of Afghan history. Isn't that right? Yeah. Well, the Pashtuns are an Eastern Iranian language group, I believe. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Um, which is kind of cool. They're one of the last holdouts of Eastern Iranian, which is so you guys know, that's the same group of languages related to the, the ancient Scythians. So we've talked, we might have talked a little bit about like Scythian nomads in the past. You could say in a way that the Afghans are really the most, in a sense, the last of the Scythians, which I think is pretty cool, at least in the last major linguistic group of that of that category. Yeah, so the Pashtuns, they have this reputation as like this pastoralist uh, warrior people. They live in the mountains. They have their tribes. They're intensely xenophobic. They don't really care about what's going on in the wider world, yada, yada, yada. That's the, that's the kind of traditional perception of Afghans, at least, of Pashtuns. Yeah, so the Pashtuns were very tribal people and fiercely individualistic in many ways. But in the 18th century, you finally have something that approaches a Pashtun state on the territory of Afghanistan, which had previously been like a territory of other empires. And this was the so-called uh, Durrani dynasty. Uh, uh, basically, what had happened was that after the collapse of a Persian dynasty, the Pashtuns decided that they were in danger of a Persian invasion to retake the territory. And so they select uh, this guy from among them. His name was Ahmad Shah Durrani to lead them. And something to understand is that the Pashtuns had this very feudal tribal structure, which basically eschewed larger political authority. So like they would only really come together in these mass meetings called jurgas to like uh, make de uh, decisions that affected all Pashtuns in general and surrendering political authority to a higher figure. Many episodes ago, we talked about the, the show Barbarians on Netflix, and I think that kind of depicts sort of a similar tribal decision-making structure. Yeah, yeah. So this guy, Ahmad Shah Durrani, who was at the time 25 years old, was selected, and he proved to be a very capable leader. He captured a lot of territory all the way from northwestern Iran to most of present-day Pakistan. And he even sacked uh, Delhi in 1757. Uh, the Mughal Sultan actually pledged uh, fealty to the Durrani's and was paying them tribute. So this was a big deal. 
That's great. And, and you know what? What all this what all this goes to show to me is that despite the way Americans might perceive Afghanistan, the nation isn't really just this, you know, provincial backwater. It really is at the crossroads of so many important places. It is, therefore, a very important place. And I think that Afghanistan has been directly or indirectly the center of so many conflicts in the past. Hence, you know, the whole crossroads of empire sort of idea. And I think probably the most relevant early modern conflict we should talk about in the 19th century is the Great Game. So what exactly was that? So the so-called Great Game was this conflict in Central Asia between Russia and the British Empire. Basically, Britain were acting under the assumption that the Russians were trying to reach warm water ports. And because of this, they had an imperative to take over India. So the British thought that the Russians were going to capture Afghanistan and then march their enormous armies into India. That's hilarious. Well, I think it's just hilarious to me that, you know, Britain is actively colonizing Russia and then it goes around and accuses Russia of trying to do the same thing. Yeah, yeah, of course. And so basically this resulted in a strong British desire to create buffer states between itself and Russia. And Afghanistan played a very crucial role in that. It should also be underlined that the Great Game wasn't simply about Central Asia. It had as much to do with the balance of power in Europe as much as it did in Central Asia itself. Yeah, yeah, because there was this broad fear across the 19th century of the so of Russia, you know, of the Russian Empire rising as a power. That's why you had the British and French intervening on behalf of the Ottomans in the Crimean War, most famously. Yeah, no, I was just thinking uh, this great game that Sam was mentioning that lasted. I mean, it's hard to put a starting and an ending date, but it definitely lasted for the majority of the 19th century. Was very defining of what we would consider the the current borders of Afghanistan, which are to a degree disputed. And also sort of foreshadows what's going to happen to Afghanistan throughout the 20th century and the 21st, which is sort of falling victim to its strategic location in Central Asia and as a central point among regional powers in dispute. And the fact that Afghanistan was sort of carved out from a global and regional interests, for example, dividing the Pashtun population that you guys mentioned between Afghanistan and what is today Pakistan, Oh, and if I could just jump in right here, uh, the, the, the line we're talking about between Afghanistan and Pakistan, known as the Durand Line, it actually means that the vast majority of Pashtun people live in Pakistan, not Afghanistan. Most Americans don't know this, but there are three times as many Pashtuns, who basically are ethnic Afghans, as they're often called, living in Pakistan than Afghanistan itself. Right. And if you define Afghanistan as primarily or originally the state of the Pashtun with several other ethnic minorities, that becomes problematic. And it really shows, you know, a former president of, uh, of Afghanistan, Hamid Karzai, he once said that Afghanistan and Pakistan were twins separated at birth. And he also said that Afghanistan will never recognize the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And the fact that ethnic uh, divisions are so separated from political lines that have been defined through other criteria really sets the stage for foreign regional intervention in Afghanistan throughout essentially all of its history. And this is the classic post-colonial ethnic conflict. When you have this line drawn entirely for strategic reasons by European colonial powers persists into the post-colonial period with really awful ethnic ramifications. You see this all across Africa, you see this all across the Middle East, you see it to a lesser extent in Southeast Asia. So this great game continued for pretty much as long as the Russian Empire continued to exist. But then uh, when the, the Bolshevik Revolution happened in 1917, uh, the Soviets took a much more proactive role in helping Afghanistan, uh, which was at the time fighting the third Anglo-Afghan War in 1919. 
through which they would win their independence. And the Soviets helped them in this war through funding and through weapons. And ultimately, Afghanistan would be one of the first states to recognize the Soviet Union in, in 1921. Really? I, I never knew that. But of course, the post-World War II period for Afghanistan wasn't all peaches and roses because very quickly from what I understand, there was a set of coups, right? And a set of uh, different, basically successive dictators. Well, that took a while, but immediately in the post-war period, Afghanistan continued to maintain its more neutral stance in, in the Cold War. And basically, this was fine by the United States because it didn't see Afghanistan as a super important investment. So because of that, the majority of foreign aid to Afghanistan was provided by the Soviet Union, who would build many different projects, uh, lots of highways, uh, investing in universities. That's interesting. Yeah. So there is this long, very long history of, you know, Soviet Afghan aid basically going back as long as the Soviet Union existed. And of course, this this tradition of aid and support is what is going to draw the Soviet Union into a very notorious invasion in 1979, possibly as a consequence of Soviet support. There was a pretty strong communist movement in Afghanistan during the 60s and 70s. There was the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, which had its two rival factions. One of them, the Kalk faction, was a bit more rural and tribal. And then the Parcham faction was much more of the kind of classic urban intellectual workers and students party in the cities. And the real difference between these two factions is that Hulk was much more transformational in its outlook. They wanted to get reforms done as quickly as possible, whereas Parcham was much more gradualist in its approach. So in 1973, when the king of Afghanistan was out of the country, a general, Muhammad Dawood Khan, took power, and he was a member of the royal family who had previously served as prime minister from 1953 to 1963. And he was this very classic sort of autocratic modernizer type, as well as being a very vocal Pashtun nationalist and more friendly to the Soviet Union, like actually friendly as opposed to the monarchy. And so... Uh, Dawood Khan, he launched the coup in 1973, which was almost bloodless, as I said. And he does this with the help of the PDPA. The, which is the group we just mentioned, yeah, the, the, the Marxist-Leninist party. And unfortunately, uh, this coup resulted in a lot of destabilization because Dawood Khan, he was, as I said, a very strong Pashtun nationalist. And because of this, like he refused to recognize the Durand line, the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan. And he was uh, supporting Pashtun elements within Pakistan who wanted to become part of Afghanistan. And so this was actually the time when Pakistan started funding the Mujahideen all the way back in 1973 to disrupt this government, which was threatening its territorial integrity which was already under question because Bangladesh, or what was then East Pakistan, had only recently uh, seceded. Right. And I guess well, before we get into the, into the Mujahideen, we should mention the fact that they were, they were really, they existed in retaliation. Their forerunners were the opposition to the People's Democratic Party, the communist group we mentioned earlier, because this communist group had pretty radical reforms that would have really freaked out a lot of Islamic traditionalists. Just to list off some of their potential reforms is that the Hulk faction of the People's Democratic Party, they were interested in the revolutionary duty, as they saw it, of the government. So they wanted the abolition of old feudal and pre-feudal relations, as they saw them, and also ensuring the equality of women and men in all outlooks, which is pretty radical, even in for a modern Western society. In addition, they sought to free peasants from the yoke of oppressive exploiters, which is very kind of Maoist language there by basically eliminating rural indebtedness and destroying the traditional landlordism that had existed, and I assume still exists, in Afghanistan. And last is that, uh, like we said before, they really wanted to ensure equal rights between women and men. 
and for removing unjust patriarchal feudalistic relations between husband and wife. They wanted to abolish any system of bride prices, for instance, to have a much higher age of consent, and also to make sure, this really pissed people off, to make sure that men and women would attend the same schools. So these changes really challenged Islamic and pre-Islamic conditions that had existed in Afghanistan for many, many hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. It was this major potential change happening in the country. And many rural Afghans who were much more traditional in their outlook really freaked out. Yeah, I would say that a lot of these reforms sound great, but uh, even the Parchman faction and sometimes even the Soviet Union, as they saw these reforms being so unpopular among the more traditionalist rural Afghans, they would often say, you know, you should include other actors. And I'm sure that the rural Afghans were probably 70% of the country, right? Right, exactly. I mean, uh, these people who governed were mostly also Pashtun, which also meant that in the beginning, in the Khalq faction which also meant that a lot of non-Pashtun Afghans didn't feel represented by the government, but uh, they really sort of railed against some traditions, some Islamic and some pre-Islamic, which were also seen as traditional sort of Afghan way of life. Just to jump on that, the Gaburkas, for instance, are, are older than Islam in Afghanistan. Exactly. And they have nothing to do with Islam. The early Muslim women didn't wear, you know, the chadri, which is the, the clothes that we associate Afghan women under the Taliban with. So, so many Americans see the burqa, this Afghan garment, as inherent to how they imagine Islamic morality. So I think it's very interesting to note that the burqas are not an Islamic artifact. Exactly. And even, I mean, obviously the dowry is not an Islamic institution. Yeah, Christian Europe used dowry for a very long time, but they really sort of destroyed the tradition of arranged marriages and the dowry, even though it sounds horrible because they're essentially paying for a bride, also meant, you know, the source of income for very poor families who had nothing to sell or no real source of income outside of their daughters. Um, so they, they essentially organized a counter-revolution among the more traditional sectors of society. And the fact that they were Marxist meant that they were associated with the Soviet Union, which many Afghans saw as the major evil in an officially atheistic country against religion, against property, against the privileges of religious institutions, and really sort of set the, the stage for a very conservative opposition, which would play a role in the armed rebellion against the communists. And we should mention this Soviet influence wasn't only ideological, because you also had all of these Soviet experts being employed in the Afghan government, especially because there was there were so many different purges of the arrests and execution of government officials in Afghanistan. Well, because of these purges, there was a, a desire for experts. And so a whole bunch of uh, Soviet experts, who I assume were probably mostly ethnic Russians, were brought in. There were a lot of Central Asians among them as well, because at, um, at first the Soviets wanted to have a strategy whereby the Soviet faces in the country would be Tajik or Uzbek, who are familiar ethnic groups, rather than Russians, because that, that would have a more questionable attitude. Yeah, there's also testimony of, you know, Russian becoming a, a very sort of official language of Afghan universities as the relationship between Afghanistan and the Soviet Union became more and more official. Uh, people from urban centers, you know, like Kabul, going to rural parts of the country, uh, you know, inspired by very sort of influenced by Marxism. And that, you know, meant a cultural religious clash between uh, rural and urban or more modern and more conservative Afghans. Uh, well, we should probably uh, just as a little comparison here. If anyone remembers one of our earlier episodes, we talked about the, the Cuban film um, Wasp Network. The characters speak Russian. 
because that's just that even though Cuba, like Afghanistan, was never part of the Soviet Union, there was such a strong Soviet political influence that it translated into a Russian cultural influence in this period. Right, exactly. And the communists in power, for example, you know, they said to themselves the goal of making every Afghan be able to read and write which most of the population wasn't able to. To this day, there's still a very high percentage of the population that doesn't know how to read or write. And that meant for many Afghans feeling cornered in these plans of very quick modernization of the educational system, which also established, you know, obligatory co-ed education, which many Afghans were completely against. Well, you know, so you mentioned uh, earlier, Kevin, that there was a backlash. Sam, could you tell us about who uh, embodied this backlash? Who was the Afghan captain? As a result uh, of the government's very vindictive nature, as well as the fact that a lot of people just were not happy with these uh, reforms, particularly landlords. So as a result of this, much of the country was in revolt. And a very famous early revolt, which happened in March of 1979, happened in the city of Herat. A charismatic Afghan army captain named Ismail Khan called for jihad against the communist usurpers that March and led his armed Herat garrison into violent revolt. His followers hunted down and hacked to death more than a dozen Russian communist political advisors, as well as their wives and children. The rebels displayed Russian corpses on pikes along shaded city streets. Soviet-trained pilots flew bomb jets out of Kabul in vengeful reply, pulverizing the town in remorseless waves of attack. So yeah, (laughs) definitely, definitely not a great time to be in Afghanistan. And it certainly would only get worse. So essentially what you have is not just measures that were unpopular, they were also huge economic failures. The idea that, you know, we're going to try to uh, take away the benefits of these people who are exploiting the Afghan peasant, uh, that also took away all credit and caused a huge problem uh, in the economy and huge migration waves. Anyway, this is all happening in a very complicated time in Afghanistan where you have this uh, economic uh, crisis and cultural failure. And you have a lot of infighting uh, in the Communist Party uh, between these two factions that we're talking about. And there's this... uh, So eventually the Parcham faction uh, comes to power. Uh, But this doesn't really solve anything, even though they're trying to get, you know, a broader alliance of social classes, political parties in the government. It's not enough to make it work. And the Soviet Union sees they need to sort of save communism in Afghanistan from what is bound to be a failure. This is also sort of influenced by the idea that Soviets have that they're not completely trustful of Afghan leadership. And they're seeing the fact that the Afghan president was meeting the American ambassador twice a month and he's having talks with Western powers to sort of have a sort of third way communism kind of thing. Uh, so they decide to invade, not even announcing the, it, uh, their invasion to their Afghan allies in government. They just go all in, even though they were saying, you know, to the Afghans that they're doing military exercises, which is why they're mobilizing the troops near the border. But they go in with what ends up being, you know, a presence of 100,000 troops. That was going to be an invasion of only a few months, which really took a hard time convincing to some members of the of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union but ends up being a presence of 10 years and what many people consider to be the Soviet's Vietnam eh, or the bear trap, as it's called sometimes, because it... And that's, that's, that's the classic, you know, that's the classic blunder. So many imperial powers, I believe it was it the French in World War I or the Germans who said that you'll be home by Christmas. 
And, and, and you're right. And, and, and calling it you know, calling it the, the Soviet Vietnam really does seem to be like it's the famous comparison, but it seems to be pretty apt, except that, um, unfortunately, I would think that the, 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 the Soviet failure in Afghanistan probably had a much a, a much harsher impact on Soviet domestic politics than the failure in Vietnam had on the U.S. You know, we can say it, maybe it should have, but the failure to oust the communists from Vietnam did not lead to the collapse of the American empire. That is true. Um, I wouldn't say that the war in Afghanistan is what did the Soviet Union in. It was uh, honestly a very small factor. Like they lost, what, like 15,000 people in total, which isn't nothing. But compared to what they had suffered in World War II, it, it's very insignificant. Um, it definitely contributed to the atmosphere of the time, this idea that the government is corrupt and nobody knows what's being done in, in our name. But in and of itself, this is not what caused the Union to collapse. Well, it was also wonderful for American propaganda in that particular stage of the Cold War. I mean, uh, broadcasting the atrocities, real or exaggerated, of the Soviets in Afghanistan was wonderful for this idea of American exceptionalism in the 1980s, where they were really defending liberty and the dignity of Afghans against a Soviet empire that knew no borders, even though they were really applying similar doctrines. I mean, the Soviets were applying the Brezhnev doctrine, the idea that any communist government in danger of falling to counter-revolution had to be defended by world communism. Yeah, we, absolutely. And we should mention that you know, the United States very quickly jumped on this as a potential propaganda piece. You, um, in addition to the fact that the U.S. was actually funding the groups that would become the Mujahideen even before the Soviet invasion, the U.S. media and the U.S. government were very interested in this conflict. Carter, at the end of his term, took a very harsh stance against the Soviets after previously being a, a pretty mellow kind of, you know, peaceful reconciliation type of guy, he uh, famously boycotted the 1980 Soviet Olympics because of the invasion of Afghanistan, and then he even compared the Soviets to the Nazis because of their invasion, saying that this invasion must be stopped before it becomes a contagious disease. So here you have this incredibly harsh comparison, especially considering, you know, the history of Russian Nazi involvement, you know. And then also uh, the fact that he's calling it a contagion really makes you think that Jimmy Carter, this famous peacemaker, is instead bringing back the domino theory language of the 50s and 60s. So it's a pretty quick change we're seeing right here as a response to the invasion. It's such a great war for propaganda because it's a David versus Goliath sort of event. You are seeing direct Soviet interference through planes, through bombs, you know, this really advanced army against a rural population that only had religion and mules to defend themselves, even though this turns out not to be true, and you have an investment of over a billion dollars a year at one point in the 1980s, but it, it, that wasn't what they showed. And of course, it wasn't only American investment. Very interestingly, the Chinese government, which had very strongly broken with the Soviets over the past two decades, provided a lot of aid via Pakistan to the Mujahideen. Um, as the movie depicts, a lot of Arab and Israeli support, quite interestingly, both came together to fund the Mujahideen as a way to undermine the Soviets. Oh, absolutely. Where uh, we could see, where we could talk about the humanitarian crisis that they caused in Afghanistan, this was also a political opportunity for so many actors in the region to broaden their influence. I mean, Pakistan saw what was happening in Afghanistan, and this was a wonderful opportunity for them to redeem themselves before a Western public that was upset with them over their persecution of the nuclear bomb. So we shouldn't see this as just a crisis. It was also a huge opportunity for many countries. Right. And you know, there, there's this uh, famous quote about Afghanistan here. Um, 
which I believe is from the CIA, which is that here's the beauty of the Afghan operation. Usually it looks like the big bad Americans are beating up the natives. Afghanistan is just the reverse. It's the Russians beating on the little guys. We don't make it our war. Yeah, that was a quote by Bill Casey, I believe, who was the head of the CIA during the Reagan years. Yeah. Well, yeah, so that, that is, that's the history up to this point, basically bringing us to 1980, which is where this movie begins. The movie being, you know, Charlie Wilson's War. Just to give a little bit of detail about the movie itself, it was the last movie directed by Mike Nichols, who's this famous, you know, king of comedy from the 60s. Uh, you know, he directed um, The Graduate most famously. It kind of interestingly links sort of an older and newer era of Hollywood because it was written by Aaron Sorkin, like we've mentioned. Although I would say it's, personally, I did I found it much more tolerable than a lot of Aaron Sorkin movies. You don't have the kind of classic, like, quipping back and forth between the characters as much. It, if anything, really, it, it kind of follows the story structure of like a, kind of like a Henry IV by Shakespeare kind of story. Because really what this movie is about, the way Sorkin and Nichols portray it, is that Charlie Wilson is this decadent playboy who has to learn to grow up by supporting the Afghan cause. And then even though this support took the form of funding these very hardline radical militias, which we've now seen the horrific backlash of across the last 20 years of Afghanistan, in this movie, it's depicted as this basically a, a singularly heroic campaign to liberate a country from communist oppression. So Senator Charles Wilson of Texas, he was uh, quite interestingly a, a Southern Democrat who represented kind of a link between the old Democrats we talked about in the last episode and the new Democrats, because he was in the South, but he was from a heavily African-American district of Texas. So he was somewhat unusual, as already it was quite a red state. He mostly, as a Democrat, he mostly came into national attention because there was a 1978 Washington Post article that described him as Good Time Charlie, the famous partier. What did he have to say about himself? I have an enormously good time, Representative Wilson says. There's nothing about his job I don't like. I'm a legislative animal. You can take a job seriously without taking yourself seriously. And I think the fact that I go around without a frown all the time puts out some people. Yeah, and we should add that this movie opens with us seeing Charlie Wilson's naked butt descending into a hot tub full of nude strippers and Playboy models, which is a real thing that happened. He was famously this great partier and got into a lot of trouble because <laughs> was caught partying with strippers. What else does he have to say about himself? I've never sacrificed the way that I wanted to live for mores that other people perceive of my district, answers Wilson. My constituents know they're not electing a constipated monk. A lot of Southern politicians are hypocritical and pious, and they don't need to be. <laughs> uh, yeah. I wouldn't swap this job for anything. It's a great adventure, a great game. I love a parade. Like someone said, if it's a funeral, I want to be the corpse. If it's a wedding, I want to be the bride. <laughs> That's a very good quote, yeah. And I will say, like, despite the fact that he made some <laughs> foreign policy decisions that led to the deaths of a lot of people um, and potentially led to the control of Afghanistan by the Taliban today, he does seem like a pretty likable guy, you know? Yeah, we're going to put this dude on the rock list. <laughs> oh, absolutely, yes. Few dudes have rocked harder than Charlie Wilson. He rocked in many ways. One thing that the film depicts is his office being entirely staffed by these beautiful young women. yes. And of course, he actually was that, of course, he called them Charlie's Angels. As one should. Yes, yes. You know, speaking of women and also speaking of rock, he was famously caught with cocaine. And so here's his own quote he had to say many years later. When the time this, this movie was coming out, 
someone asked him, is it true that as depicted, you were at a party with strippers and coke? What Charlie says is, the girls had cocaine and the music was loud. It was pure happiness. And both of them had 10 long red fingernails with an endless supply of beautiful white powder. The feds spent a million bucks trying to figure out whether or when those beautiful white fingernails passed under my nose. And I ain't telling. He really has that southern charm down. Oh yes, so that is how Charlie Wilson portrayed himself. That is how he was basically understood by the American public. But, you know, of course, (laughs) there are also many more critical appraisals of Charlie Wilson and his impact. One of the most critical appears in Max Blumenthal's The Management of Savagery. On Capitol Hill, Wilson was known as an alcoholic Bulgarian who did good for his largely African-American constituency back in East Texas, but provided the timber industry with the loyal servant. He had cultivated a reputation as the most ardent supporter of the Mujahideen in Congress, leveraging his position on two congressional committees to double funding for the covert war in Afghanistan. He did this with a single phone call to the staffer in charge of the White House Appropriations Committee's Black Operations Budget. I was expecting to have to debate and and justify it and all that, Wilson said, but when it was read out in the closed session of the Appropriations Committee, nobody said a word. (laughs) Uh, You know, honestly, I have to wonder if the fact that he was this, you know, notorious, you know, rake and rastabout, who, you know, was probably no stranger of making money through shady reasons and spending money for shady reasons on shady things might have helped him as, you know, as a black ops kind of guy. And think about, yeah, and you know, like, there's such a long history of, of the CIA working with organized crime syndicates. I think that in a way, working with a shady politician probably is just as good. Yeah, I would, I would also add the movie shows his connection to weapons manufacturers and sellers, especially when he travels to Israel and also meets with Egyptians. He actually meets this guy who exists in real life, who's named Tzvi Rafiach in Israel, who sold weapons. And he describes himself as sort of Charlie Wilson's unofficial ambassador whenever he visited Israel, which was very often. And the fact that he describes himself in the movie as Israel's guy on the hill, which was actually a description that he would have, gives us a very interesting glimpse because I don't I don't recall seeing any other sort of high profile Hollywood movie that uh, acknowledges the existence of an Israel lobby. And the fact that he was perceived as a, such a Zionist, even though he was a Christian in a heavily Christian district, also gave him the legitimacy of being able to help radical Muslims in the Middle East without anyone ever uh, implying that he was an anti-Semite or an anti-Zionist. He had Zionist cred. I, um, I should also add that this movie features the worst Israeli accent I've ever heard. So a Scottish guy, which is hilarious. Yeah, getting a Scotsman to play an Israeli. But uh, we should mention, you know, speaking of um, the weapons industry, his connections to weapons, he had this obsession with uh, a Swiss uh, company called Erlikon, who made some uh, 22 millimeter cannons that even though they were deemed as worthless against Soviet air power, he ended up using special language in the appropriations bill to require the Pentagon to spend $40 million to acquire these alleged, supposedly worthless Swiss guns. We should also mention the fact that, you know, speaking of these potentially shady dealings, Wilson owned a quarter million dollars of stock in an oil company that became a Pakistani subsidiary right when he got his interest in Afghanistan. So even though the movie depicts that, you know, Charlie Wilson, this errant playboy, learns to take his life seriously after discovering this terrible war, in real life, he might have had far more mercenary reasons to be invested in Afghanistan. 
Yeah, and even if you describe the way Wilson saw his own intervention, it seems when you see the hot tub scene that he's uh, sympathizing with the poor Afghans fighting off Soviet invasion, but he's also an ardent anti-communist that really saw how the Afghanistan could be the domino piece that could bring the downfall of of the Soviet Union and communism worldwide. So he's really more, I would say, in an anti-communist crusade than he is being, you know, guided by his sympathy towards the poor Afghans, which is the way that the movie describes him. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of popular anti-communism, which was actually a big part of our last episode, we should mention one really more important character, who is Joanne Herring, played by Julia Roberts, who is this, she's still alive, she's a real person. She's this Texas socialite who was part of all of these basically ground-level far-right causes. And she was one of the main agitators for U.S. involvement in the war against the Soviets. Um, what's interesting about her is that she was part of a group called the Minute Women, which was sort of a, a, a women's social club equivalent to the John Burt Society. It was this somewhat radical anti-communist group that really tried to, you know, j- raise up support for resisting the Soviets more actively. And what I find, just a little quick aside here, something I find kind of interesting is that this group, the Minute Women, was founded by a Belgian woman named Suzanne Silverkreuz, who came to attention about 50, 60 years before this film is set. Because when she was only a teenager, this woman, Suzanne Silverkreuz, actually testified before Congress on behalf of the World War I effort. She, as a Belgian refugee, she was a big part of the whole uh, campaign, the propaganda campaign known as the Rape of Belgium, that tried to drum up anger at the German invasion and support involvement in the war. Which, number one, at first, um, I think is a very interesting link between her and Joanne Herring, who tried to agitate for involvement in Afghanistan, and also brings to mind the famous case in the 90s of Naira, the young woman from Kuwait, who is the who is the daughter of the ambassador who gave a false testimony that helped bring the U.S. into the first Gulf War. One more thing I want to add about Joanne Herring is that uh, she was uh, a real sort of a tabloid scandal star for many years before her involvement in Afghanistan. And in 1959, she actually earned an article in Life magazine because she and her husband threw a lavish party in Texas with the theme of Roman orgy. Um, it's so cool that people can be this depraved, but also be born again Christians in this very same time period. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, one thing that's kind of a little reference to that, I think a little subtle nod to that famous party in this movie is that the party supposedly included a mock slave auction. And in the movie, she's participating in one of those like uh, date auctions with sorority girls. That's, that's how she first comes into attention because she's a fundraiser. Yeah, to raise money for the Mujahideen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, so um, so, yeah, so, so tell us, uh, Sam, about her connections with the Afghan cause and her links to Pakistan, because that's really interesting. Yeah, so uh, somehow she met the acquaintance uh, of Zia-ul-Haq, who was the Pakistani general who did a coup attempt against the democratically elected government. The, yeah, you, you, could, you can call him a dictator. It's, you know, he's, he's, he, was, he is the military dictator of Pakistan. Yeah, and uh, so their paths crossed, and uh, she sort of became a poster child for the Pakistani cause in the United States. She became an, an honorary ambassador for Pakistan, even. But despite being so in the know, she seems to be a very 
stupid woman. Let's say this. I don't think she was stupid at all, but she really wasn't very well informed in this in the cause that she was championing. Like famously, you know, the former Pakistan ambassador Hussein Haqqani, he said that she was known more for her glamour than her wisdom. However, Zia al-Huq showered her with hospitality to use her connections. Haqqani also continues that Joanne Herring knew almost nothing about Afghanistan, famously describing it in her book as an Arab nation. Even though, as we, we just talked about, they, they don't speak Arabic. They speak an Eastern Iranian language. You know, like they're, they're, they're sort of like the inheritors of the Scythians. They have, they're Muslim, but they aren't Arab in the slightest. Yeah, they're not even close to Arabs. <laughs> no, not, not, linguist, not, lingu, not linguistically. There isn't any Arab-speaking country anywhere near Afghanistan. No, I mean, come on. Um, everyone knows that the Pakistanis stole the land of Israel and are try- now trying to claim to be the indigenous population. That is right. Yes, that is historically correct. So yeah, so uh, Joanne Herring was, you know, really involved in this push. One kind of funny part in the movie is that when she uh, introduces the dictator Zia al to an event, she says, let me be clear, he did not kill Bhutto. And Zulfikar Bhutto was the previous president. Yeah, the, the father of the famous also killed Benazir Bhutto, the uh, assassinated political activist. Yeah, so Zia al he did a military coup in July 1977. Yeah, and Jimmy Carter, you know, was not happy with that. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't just that. Well, first of all, there was the sudden concern about human rights in Zia's Pakistan, but also the fact that around this time, it was learned that Pakistan, acting contrary to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, was in fact trying to develop its own nuclear weapons program. And this resulted in the United States basically uh, giving Pakistan the cold shoulder during Jimmy Carter's tenure. But then when Reagan came into the White House, he suddenly found new appreciation for Pakistan. I think so. In a sense, you know, because of this anti-Soviet link, Ziaul Hook was a natural ally for the Mujahideen. And of course, just like them, he was a strong Islamic conservative. He brought back some some Islamic influences on Pakistani law that had been removed. For instance, um, most notoriously, instituting these very brutal uh, restrictions on adultery and fornication. And there's a whole scene in the movie that's based on a real case, this horrible case, where a blind 15-year-old girl was raped. And because there weren't enough male witnesses to testify... Her, her abuser was never arrested, and instead she was jailed and even lashed for extramarital sex. It's just a really awful story. What a lot of people don't realize is that even though Pakistan was founded as a home to the Muslims in the region, as a split away country from India, it wasn't built on a sort of theological ground to build an Islamic state that would be founded on Islamic law. And if I can add, I think that that's a... That's a pretty typical story, I feel like, you see across the Muslim world in the second half of the 20th century. You have these governments that are largely secular, oftentimes sometimes having certain links to socialism or the USSR, and then slowly across the course of the Cold War, the secular factions oftentimes get edged out by religious conservatives. Exactly. Uh, the French Orientalist Gilles Capel calls this the, re- the revenge of God. And Pakistan is a perfect example of how God becomes a central part of the picture in Pakistani politics in the 1980s. And this happened in several places in the region. A period that was dominated by, for example, Arab nationalism was replaced in the late 70s and 1980s by a political Islam. And this has to do with several things that are happening at the same time. One of them is the Iranian revolution, the Islamic revolution in 1979 in Iran, the takeover of uh, of Mecca 
by rebels in Saudi Arabia, and of course the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. This all happens at the same time, and it, it, it this influences a very conservative line of thought and how a political Islamic movements that used to be marginalized in the edges of politics in different countries become very central elements towards the end of the Cold War. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just to be clear, this wasn't an accident. This wasn't some force of nature. This was a deliberate attempt by the United States in cooperation with Saudi Arabia to use its newfound oil wealth to propagate the Wahhabi interpretation of Islam, which is very stringent and unfamiliar to most parts of the Muslim world, I'd say. Right. This is only very few years after the uh, oil crisis of 1973. So countries that used to be very primitive very poor countries that had uh, very low populations become hugely wealthy overnight. And they're trying to export their particular brand of Islam in other parts of the Muslim world. And this also has to do with the Afghan war. You had, you had nations of pearl fishers becoming nations of oil billionaires. Exactly. And the fact that some of these countries, like Saudi Arabia, are suddenly being challenged by revolutionary Iran, who is saying, you know, these people aren't Muslims, they've sold themselves to the great Satan, which is the U.S., also makes them very thirsty for these types of conflict where they can show how they're the real defenders of the Muslim community. So this also becomes a huge opportunity for Saudi Arabia to broadcast their Islamic credentials and frame Afghan resistance to the Soviet invasion as an Islamic thing. Yeah, one last small ingredient here, and I don't want to exaggerate the importance of this, but I think it's quite interesting, is the fact that, like we mentioned, more Pashtun people live in Pakistan than Afghanistan, which meant that the Afghans were very interested in opposing the Soviets, but also avoiding any kind of nationalist groundswell within Afghanistan. And the perfect way to do that is support religious conservatives who hold up the fact that they are Muslims as more important than the fact that they are Pashtuns. Because there was a fear that if a Pashtun nationalist movement emerges, it might attempt to cross the Durand line and take territory or unite with the Afghans of Pakistan. Oh, absolutely. This was as much war against communism than it was against the nationalism. And it's really amazing how the Afghan Jihad, as it became called in many parts of the Muslim world, because several high-profile clerics framed this as a jihad and a sort of personal obligation to any uh, able-bodied Muslim man to go and fight for, for Afghanistan, replaced some other causes that had been very dear to the Muslim world. For example, Afghanistan replaced the Palestinian cause in the minds of many Muslims uh, to, uh, around the Middle East and symbolized this real big shift between from nationalism towards Islamism. This also set the stage for many Mujahideen to not just be from Afghanistan, but really coming from all parts of the Muslim world, places like Egypt, the Arabian Peninsula, even Southeast Asia. Uh, and they lived in close communities there in Afghanistan, where they received intensive training. And this sort of, uh, there was cross-fertilization, also Gilles Capel calls this, uh, between different ideologies. And this, was became, this became hugely influential. These Mujahideen from the Arab world became heroes, some of them really well-known, such as Osama bin Laden, who, of course, became very famous uh, many years later. And that's that's the backlash that probably most of our listeners already know, is that in, in, in a strange kind of roundabout way, you can link good time Charlie Wilson with 9-11. Oh, oh, absolutely. But 
Um, a common misconception that you hear um, is that America created the Taliban, basically, which isn't exactly the case. Basically, America created the conditions for the Taliban to be able to proliferate. Right. We don't have to get into the details of that here, but we should talk about what the Mujahideen were dealing with once they basically gained their foothold in Afghanistan. One really important thing that they started doing were establishing Islamic schools around the country. And in addition to instilling much more traditional Islamic values in a country that, remember, had previously banned dowries, instituted integrated schooling, all of that, now was providing a much more hardline traditional form of education. And one thing that's kind of interesting, the way that these textbooks that the Mujahideen gave their third graders were explicitly anti-Soviet in some really bizarre ways. Yeah, so this is a quote from Mahmoud Mamdani's Good Muslim, Bad Muslim. The Mujahideen operated an educational center for Afghanistan during the 1980s. A Pervez Hood boy gives the following examples from children's textbooks designed for use by the University of Nebraska under a 50 million USA grant that ran from September 1986 through June 1994. A third grade mathematics textbook asked, uh, one group of uh, Mujahideen attack 50 Russian soldiers. In that attack, 20 Russian soldiers are killed. How many Russians fled? A fourth grade textbook ups the ante. The speed of a Kalashnikov bullet is 800 meters per second. If a Russian is at a distance of 3,200 meters from a Mujahid, and that Mujahid aims at the Russian head, calculate how many seconds it would take for the bullet to strike the Russian in the forehead. Uh, the program ended in 1994, but the books continued to circulate. This would make math so much fun. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Yeah, America should try using those books to, you know, get their kids to be better with that. We should mention that the fact that the Pakistani intelligence service, which is very notorious, very shady, was heavily involved in this. They were the, they were the kingmakers in the situation, and all American aid went through them. They were able to lock the CIA out of direct involvement and force all aid to go directly through them, which allowed them to pick their kingmakers. And in the case of the Pakistanis, their favorite was Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, who was a rather infamous warlord, the head of the Hezbi Islami party who was famous for attacking fellow Mujahideen rather than the Soviets because he was trying to consolidate all of his power. He was a very nasty figure, like to the point of throwing acid at women's faces. Uh, he was the one who shelled uh, uh, Kabul after the end of the war. Like during the Soviet-Afghan war, Kabul was spared. But in the aftermath of that, he was directly shelling Kabul with artillery. Yeah, that earned him the nickname, the Butcher of Kabul. We should mention that even though, you know, these, these American allies in the region were excessively brutal in a lot of cases, and they would become the forebears of the Taliban, and to a lesser extent, Al-Qaeda, it should be noted that Americans were huge cheerleaders for the Afghan effort. They really saw it as this, like, you know, democratic, anti-communist cause, and that because the Soviets were directly involved, and because, to be honest, the Soviets were incredibly brutal in their invasion, it was really easy to cheer for the Afghans in ways that it was harder to cheer for groups like the Contras, who were more controversial. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. Um, in a way, the Mujahideen were basically the non-problematic counterpart to the Contras. And one thing that uh, you noted, Sam, was that because of the Smith-Munt Act of 1948, international propaganda was not supposed to be broadcast in America. However, the, the Reagan admin actually took steps to avoid that and spread propaganda to Americans. Yeah, well, of course, this was nothing new. Like previously, there had been Operation Mockingbird, which was a CIA planting journalistic stories in the New York Times and other papers of... And it probably just, yeah, there's no reason to believe it's ended. Thinking about all that very negative coverage about Biden as soon as he withdrew. Yeah, exactly. And so under the Reagan administration, the scale of this stuff grew. And it was a question of scale rather than application. But so the Reagan people, people started all of these projects like 
Project Truth and Project Democracy operating under the auspices of the U.S. Information Agency, which was this quote-unquote public diplomacy outfit. Public diplomacy basically being a softer word for propaganda. Yeah, and we've shown that most of this propaganda took the form of gruesome, lurid stories about Soviet atrocities happening in Afghanistan. It's the classic rape of Belgium type stuff that in World War One. We should add that again, there were real atrocities. There were there were enormous civilian casualties committed by the Soviets. There was there were many cases of sexual assaults by Russian Soviet soldiers. Yeah, and also didn't have precision weapons the way the Americans did when they went into Afghanistan. So the firefights and the bombings would be a lot messier and would cause many more casualties. Right. I think, yeah, one example of real atrocities being distorted into propaganda and then making their way 30 years later into this movie are the butterfly mines used by the Soviets. So just like the U.S. and Vietnam, the Soviets used a lot of mines in their war effort. They were actually, the mines they used were a ripoff of the American mine called the Dragon Tooth, which is a pretty badass name for a mine, I have to say, you know, <laughs> despite what it might do to people. And the, the Soviet butterfly mines, they were notorious because they were bright plastic, which meant they looked a little bit like toys. So there were some stories of, you know, children thinking that this piece of plastic was a toy. They maybe had never even seen something, any bright plastic outside of that context before, and they pick it up and it kills them. There were a lot of really horrible, true stories of that happening. But these true stories became very quickly distorted through the media and through this deliberate propaganda effort into saying that the Soviets are planning teddy bears with bombs under them. There is no evidence this ever happened. However, this was widely reported initially within the American press, and this story makes its way into the film. One of the only times we hear Afghan voices in this movie is when one child describes how he lost a hand picking up a candy bar that was bombed and his brother died the same way. And there were also widespread allegations of Soviet use of chemical and biological weapons in Afghanistan, which, as far as I can tell, evidence of that hasn't surfaced since then. So it's probably safe to say that it was invented to a very large extent. But also, this was important for for the Reagan administration's own ends, which at the time was seeking to revitalize the American chemical weapons program. And by pointing at these planted stories about chemical warfare used by the Soviets, uh, the Reagan administration had a justification to put yet more money into chemical weapons because, you know, we can't fall behind the Soviets in this vital field. We have to stay toe-to-toe with them. And of course, you know, this was yeah, incredibly controversial, these, all these you know, useless weapons, which probably contributed to the fact that in 1980, not long after the invasion happened, the, there was a, an official condemnation by the UN General Assembly. Yeah, it was so condemned that even some countries who were part of the Warsaw Pact didn't oppose the resolution. Countries like North Korea refused to support the invasion of the Soviet Union because China was behind the resistance. Yeah, yeah, as you mentioned, China was funding the Mujahideen to some extent. And arming them and training them. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and the Chinese even let uh, Americans set up CIA listening posts in Xinjiang to replace the ones that they had lost in, in Afghanistan. That's, that's very uh, ironic, given uh, what's happened recently in Xinjiang. But yeah, and anyways... Um, yeah, uh, Chinese foreign policy during this period was uh, very erratic, to put it mildly. Yes. And so uh, after, as a result of this condemnation, in 1980, Moscow began seeking these tentative peace talks only a year after they invaded. And you'd think that, you know, the American public would be all behind these peace talks, but the American government wasn't because they thought it would be better for the Soviets to be drawn into this longer war. They didn't want it to end so soon. 
like many voices within the Soviet government knew that this would be a disaster from the outset, but ultimately the KGB faction was able to convince the rest of the uh, Politburo that a quick operation is in the interests of the Soviet Union. Uh, unfortunately, one does not just simply do a quick operation in Afghanistan and leave. So by 1980, they were trying to create a political resolution to the conflict because it was incredibly bloody and it was creating a very bad image surrounding the Soviet Union. This idea of, of an imperialist nation trying to uh, impose its will on, on a captive Muslim religious nation. Which obviously the U.S. had never done. As Reagan assumed the mantle of power in Washington, it was quickly made clear to Pakistan that the administration did not approve of the parameters for talks. Furthermore, Pakistan's public rehabilitation in the United States and the military and economic aid that accompanied it was dependent on the new role as a frontline state in the quote-unquote Second Cold War. The U.S. media echoed this stance. The New York Times warned that direct negotiations between Pakistan and Afghanistan could serve to legitimize the Afghan government, disrupt aid to the rebels, and hence sanitize, quote-unquote, the Soviet presence there. Let's just stop here for a second and say that, to go back to the movie, they are suggesting in the film that he was an underdog. Charlie Wilson was fighting a war, was trying to fight a war that no one else was willing to fight because only he cared about the plight of the Afghans. In reality, there was such strong public support, especially by the media, for the, the Afghan cause that they even opposed peace coming too soon. So in 1981, the Soviet ambassador, uh, Dobrynin, told Secretary of State Alexander Haig that, quote-unquote, the USSR had made a serious mistake in Afghanistan and, quote, wanted to find a basis for getting out. However, there was resistance to any deal brokering with the USSR from inside and outside the administration. Yeah, no, I know. And there's this, there's this quote by that you found by Richard Pipes, the, you know, famous anti-communist historian, where he said at the time, the Russians are taking a clobbering in Afghanistan. Why let them off the hook? Yes, because conventional wisdom was that the reason why the United States had been so humiliated in Vietnam was because the Soviets were sending them lots of aid, which wasn't as decisive a factor as this version of events makes it out to be. Like, like at the end of the day, it was still the Vietnamese fighting. But this was the perception, and this was how the Reagan administration and many of its orbiters thought that they would break the so-called Vietnam syndrome. Yeah. Yeah, which, yeah, because we should add that in the late 70s, there was this pretty severe imperial malaise that had set in after the American defeat in Afghanistan. Okay, but then, um, so there really is this severe interest, this strong interest we're seeing in the early 80s for a peace settlement. In April 1983, after a year of indirect negotiations between Pakistan and Afghanistan, agreements with first settlement were finally within reach. Pakistan, facing a growing refugee crisis, Fears over Pashto nationalism and internal opposition to assisting the Mujahideen seemed finally willing to reach a compromise, but there were some doubts about whether or not the Soviets would um, be involved in the settlement. And the, the main uh, problem, it seems like, was just the fact that the United States government was still strongly opposed to a peace deal. They really wanted the, the Soviets to remain in there. Of course, in the very long term, the U.S. got their wish. The communists were completely routed, and what would become the Taliban came in. I think now might be a good time to mention, which is really the fact that it wasn't just the U.S. and, as we mentioned, China supporting the Mujahideen. This was a really international effort, especially within the Middle East, where all these very disparate countries got together to provide aid to the Afghan Islamist forces. Oh, absolutely. And one of these countries that played a fundamental role in this was uh, Saudi Arabia. 
I mean, this was a way for them partly to divert the attention that many, you know, more radical voices within the Islamic world, uh, they have been critical of the Saudis' uh, foreign policy. Uh, the Saudis had, for several decades, a very lucrative partnership with what many Islamists uh, saw as the great Satan, which was uh, the United States. But if they hated a world power even more, it was the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union that was officially atheistic and that was uh, pushing many Muslims, particularly in Central Asia, away from religion and towards atheistic Marxism. So Saudi support for, for the what they, they deemed the jihad and many clerics within Saudi Arabia referred to as a jihad was necessary in this time where their Islamic reputation was being challenged by some upcoming actors within the Muslim world. By, by that, by that and just to clarify, you mean Iran, who had the, their Islamic revolution just a year prior. The same year the Soviets invaded, you had this enormous transformation in, in Iran, where for the first time you had these quite radical Shia fundamentalists coming to power and asserting themselves as Shia Muslims, who previously didn't really have as much of a strong theocratic voice. Yeah, Iran first and foremost, but also the Saudis were being challenged by their own population. Oh, the much more, the very religious factions within Saudi Arabia. Yeah, so uh, there was a what was called the seizure of the Grand Mosque in December 1979, where insurgents called to overthrow the House of Saud, you know, the, the royal family of Saudi Arabia, uh, partly because they believed that the Mahdi, you know, the Redeemer of Islam, had arrived, but partly because they were very critical of the way that the Saudis were not being sufficiently, you know, puritanical, sufficiently strict about Islamic law and uh, their influence in foreign policy. So, so, so was the thought that by supporting the, this jihad happening in Afghanistan, then the Saudis could basically placate these factions within their own country? Well, it's that, and also the fact that global jihad sort of acts as a pressure valve. It lets you find a way to send away the crazy young men. Yes, yes. So many, so many crazy nephews. You know, in America, your crazy nephew, you just, you know, he was a gamer in the basement. If you got a crazy nephew in Saudi Arabia, you send him to Afghanistan to fight Soviets. And one such crazy nephew was, as we mentioned previously, Osama bin Laden, who came from a very wealthy, a very powerful family, which was a construction dynasty, which had literally built much of the infrastructure of the Saudi state. So the, the 1980s, as a result of everything that is happening within and outside of Saudi Arabia, was a time that a, a Saudi Arabia took a very a, a much more conservative role, giving much more power to its most traditionalist clerics, even though Wahhabi Islam had been a fundamental, a foundational ideology for the Saudi Arabian Kingdom, in the 1980s, this becomes much more puritanical and much more aggressive in the sense that the Saudis start financing religious schools, the construction of mosques, uh, start sending clerics, really as a response to what is happening in Iran, what is ha what happened within Saudi Arabia, and what is happening in other parts of the Muslim world. Again, what Gilles Keppel calls the revenge of God also has to do a lot with this Saudi shift towards a much more aggressive strand of Wahhabi Islam. 
And from that perspective, in its foreign policy, they agree to match dollar for dollar all the money that the U.S. agrees to send to the Mujahideen, but with much less need for accountability. This is a, you know, a, an absolute monarchy that, that doesn't have a Congress that it needs to respond to the American taxpayer, to the Saudi taxpayer, which doesn't exist, they don't pay taxes, uh, to justify how they send the guns. And this is also the time that the Saudis are doing major arms deals several billions of dollars worth with the Americans. And they didn't just send money for weapons to Afghanistan. They also sent several millions to finance religious schools, religious literature, to distribute copies of the Quran and uh, copies of religious books uh, written by Saudi clerics that are being translated into Dari and Pashto for Afghans to be able to read. And, and I guess and that is, it just had such important ramifications on the history of you know global Islamic politics. Oh, absolutely. After the Cold War, so many um, there was a, a great turn to Islam in a lot of um, Islamic countries. It seems like really in the last twenty years there was a much more radical turn by these you know splinter organizations like groups like Al Qaeda and groups like Boko Haram. You know, so many groups across the world which have perpetuated acts of violence in an attempt to gain power in their countries. Absolutely. Saudi help towards, say, Afghan Mujahideen and towards Afghan religious institutions even continued to flow into the country several years after uh, the Soviet invasion ended. Uh, they, in fact, became one of the biggest financiers of the Taliban until 1998, where essentially the Taliban uh, were declared enemies by the United States, which made the Saudis, who depend heavily on the U.S., to cut all financial aid to the Taliban. And I know that one of the most famous stories of, you know, Islamic radicalization under Saudi auspices is how in um, Chechnya and Dagestan, you basically had an, a very right-wing Islamic clergy created out of whole cloth by the Saudis. Right, absolutely. Uh, well, actually, this wasn't purely the Saudis doing. Um, a lot of this comes down to um, a very famous Palestinian sheikh whose last name was Azam who had basically left Palestine after the Six-Day War and who basically, he promoted a sort of Islamist internationalism, which basically argued that Muslim youth have an obligation to go and fight jihad regardless of what their parents or their community thinks. Like, this was a jihadist international, which first found its nexus in Afghanistan and which would then metastasize and establish a presence in other battlefields, such as in Chechnya, as you said, but also uh, in the former Yugoslavia in the Bosnian War. Yeah, and it can't be, uh, it has to be underlined that the fact that the Soviets ended up retreating from Afghanistan gave this uh, sort of reputation to Islamists and to the fighters who had traveled to Afghanistan. They had a victory. They had beaten one of the world's foremost superpowers, so essentially, all of these fighters and people who admire these fighters were looking for the next jihad to show the power of political Islam and to really change the region for good. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of um, Palestinians, we should probably mention that the Afghan war really made some very odd bedfellows. Because in addition to the, the U.S. and China working together in concert to fund the Mujahideen, you also had support from both Israel and also from Saudi Arabia. Oh, absolutely. I, and you see part of this in the movie? Uh, where they, 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 they say, you know, who has Soviet weapons that we can use to have this plausible deniability and, and in the beginning, uh, not to show that the U.S. is directly involved with arming the, the Mujahideen. And they say, okay, so it's Israel and Egypt. So this happened. Israel had a very large stockpile of Soviet weapons that they had seized 
from the Syrians and the Egyptians, but they're also looking for allies in the region. The 1980s was also a time where Israel is frantically looking for allies in the region. Israel famously armed the Iranians after the Islamic Revolution when they were talking about Israel being the small Satan uh, in cahoots with the great Satan, which was the United States, how uh, Iranian revolutionaries didn't even mention Israel and talked about the Zionist entity. While that was happening and while they were burning Israeli flags, Israel was a major part in the Iranian war effort against Iraq in the 1980s because Israel wanted to uh, sort of maintain a good relationship with Iranian moderates that they saw as part of the revolution, because Israel wanted to weaken Saddam Hussein, and they saw Iran as the major vehicle for that. And they also were making a, a lot of dark money for the local arms industry and for the Likud party, which was governing Israel in the 1980s. So Israel at the time wanted to weaken the Soviet Union and Iraq's position in the region. Uh, so what you see in the movie is Charlie Wilson meeting this guy, so in interviews that Rafiach gave, he's a weapons dealer, he's saying that Charlie Wilson asked him to find out in one of Israel's major gun manufacturers uh, if it's possible to build an anti-aircraft weapon uh, to be loaded on a mule and to be able to go disarm. At the end, it doesn't work out. That apparently happened. But another thing that happens, which you don't see directly in the movie, is that it, Israel has a huge surplus unjustifiable because it, it, it was it was all done in a clandestine manner uh, that it had received from selling weapons to his, uh, to Iran. And apparently some of this surplus was also being used to arm the Mujahideen uh, and even train some Mujahideen. Uh, A.Z. Hilale, who's a political science professor uh, from Pakistan, he's talking about uh, 4,000 approximately Mujahideen who were trained, armed, and financed in Pakistan by the Israelis. Uh, which you would definitely consider to be very strange bedfellows, but it also shows how Israel was, first of all, in the 1980s, a very proud part of anti-Soviet efforts in the region, but it was also looking for possible alliances. This was also the time of the Israeli incursion into Lebanon, for example, which is nothing if not Israel trying to build uh, its own allies in the region by changing the government in Beirut. And something similar is happening in Afghanistan, even though today it will be, uh, you know, very adamantly denied by Israel. And this was all done undercover. But uh, you see Israel very firmly standing in the U.S. side during this particular stage of the Cold War. And obviously Israeli weapons expertise and Israeli weapons manufacturers looking for uh, novel ways of profiting. It doesn't seem that surprising these days to hear about Israel collaborating with Saudi Arabia or Egypt. But we should add that this was a time when these hostilities were much more real between those countries and Israel. Like how the fact that Israel was in a shooting war with Egypt only seven years before this conversation takes place with Charlie Wilson. These really were still strange bedfellows at the time, brought together under the flag of this Afghan cause. Yeah, there's this very jarring scene in the movie where basically Charlie Wilson got one of his stripper friends who is a belly dancer to like dance for the Egyptian minister of arms while Charlie Wilson and his Israeli friend chat with his deputy. And there's this bizarre exchange where they just start fighting about Israel-Palestine that just goes nowhere and has a very unsatisfying conclusion. I, I remember that that part where the Egyptian guy... And the Israeli guy Mead was over a belly dancer, which apparently was a true thing that happened. It wasn't, you know, an invention of the movie. I saw it in the interview that I read from Tzvi Rafiach. 
but I believe the Israeli guy was criticizing the Egyptian over, you know, them wanting to kill the Jews and not recognizing Israel. Yeah, which was weird because at the time, both countries were at peace. Yeah, and of course, this was the still the Sadat regime, which had um, made the peace with Israel. So naturally, the people in the government would have been friendlier to Israel. And if we should also mention that the Sadat regime um, had moved away from the Soviet ties, you know, that, um, and so it seems like they might have, if they were trying to get in the good graces of the United States, they might have been very eager to participate in this basically broadly American-led effort to oust the Soviets from Afghanistan. Yeah, and again, they have the same problem as the Saudis, where they have this nascent um, Islamist movement that's causing a lot of problem domestically, and which would ultimately end up um, assassinating Sadat himself. So like, they didn't, they like the idea of having this pressure valve to send these people away. Yeah, even though this was a very international effort to fight the, 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 the Soviets in Afghanistan, it was really always orchestrated by the United States. Yeah, so in March 1985, Gorbachev had come to power and attempting to continue what his predecessors had tried to do and to bring uh, the Afghanistan war to a conclusion because it was very embarrassing and also an additional problem that the Soviet Union would have been facing at this time, the reputation of this war for a domestic audience. And so Gorbachev tries very hard uh, as part of the broader negotiations with the United States over uh, weapons and things of that nature. Uh, He was finally able to make some headway and to ensure that treaty was made, that the Soviets would be able to withdraw by the end of 1989 and to leave the uh, the Afghan government to its own uh, momentum uh, to fight for its own survival. And you have some very... uh, Famous footage um, showing these massive convoys of Soviet troops driving on a bridge into um, Uzbekistan, like back into the Soviet Union. And uh, lo and behold, uh, the Soviets are out of the picture, but the Americans and the Pakistanis and the Saudis aren't. Despite the fact that this was no longer like a a proxy war, because when the major parties had quit, uh, they continued to fund the Mujahideen at very high rates. And this was only continuing to fuel the civil war. And ultimately, the PDPA government would collapse in 1992. Credit words do. They lasted a lot longer than uh, our own pet Afghan government did after we left. Yeah, honestly, the fact that it lasted for three years when uh, Najibullah, who was the fourth communist president of Afghanistan, he essentially lost all sorts of support outside of Afghanistan. And he was fighting Islamist groups that were still receiving funds, for example, heavy funds from Saudi Arabia. That's pretty impressive. But he ended up resigning in April of 1992, and there was no unification of Islamist groups uh, after the fact that he resigned. Some of them came together uh, in a sort of accord that where they were going to split power. But, for example, Hekmatyar's faction, the one that was he- receiving heavy, very large sums of money before from Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, he refused to sign the accord. So that led to civil war in Afghanistan. Well, I guess we should also mention the fact that the Northern Alliance never actually collapsed in this initial Afghan war. There was a permanent holdout against the Taliban that uh, this time around just completely collapsed. Yeah, uh, drone warfare really changes the calculation. You're able to conquer territories over the course of a few weeks, which previously wouldn't have been taken for decades. And a big part of the reason why the Afghans were finally able to combat uh, the Soviets so effectively and to really raise the stakes is because of the so-called Stinger missiles, which are basically these, like picture an RPG and imagine these rockets shooting out, except that 
they are also heat tracing. So you, so you don't even have to aim beyond the most general of directions because it'll pick up a heat signature and automatically target that thing. And once uh, these weapons were finally in the hands of the Mujahideen, after many years of lobbying, Soviet helicopters started going down like flies. These Stinger missiles would end up being a huge headache for subsequent American governments. The total cash spent by the CIA on Stinger repurchases during the mid-1990s rivaled the total cash donations by all other sectors of the U.S. government for all humanitarian aid to Afghanistan in those years. The Stinger repurchases may have improved aviation security, but they also delivered boxes of money to the warlords who were destroying Afghanistan's cities and towns at that time. Yeah, so this created this incredibly perverse situation where by supposedly making the situation more safe, the U.S. government was in fact facilitating further fighting by ensuring a massive cash flow. And this uh, Stinger story, as I learned, uh, continues to have an afterlife. Shortly after the American withdrawal from Afghanistan, there was a story going around about the fact that several Stingers had been unaccounted for and might currently be in the hands of the Taliban. And of course, there's this fear that they would somehow fall into the hands of organizations like Al-Qaeda, which have more international objectives rather than uh, the Taliban. Yeah, and so this continues to uh, be a uh, fear, but uh, certain people certainly made off like bandits. First of all, you had arms manufacturers making quite a pretty penny, but also because of this idea that the Afghanistan war had brought down the Soviet Union, uh, the Secretary of State under Carter uh, uh, Brzezinski, who was the one who had first turned Carter onto the idea of funding the Mujahideen, uh, gave an interview in, in the 90s where uh, he had some very frank things to say about what he thinks about this entire episode. And keep in mind, this was before 9-11. When the Soviets justified their invasion by asserting that they intended to fight against secret U.S. involvement in Afghanistan, nobody believed them. However, there was an element of truth to this. Do you regret any of this today? Regret what? That secret operation was an excellent idea. It had the effect of drawing the Russians into the Afghan trap. And you want me to re regret it? The day that the Soviets officially crossed the border, I wrote to President Carter, essentially, we now have the opportunity of giving to the USSR its Vietnam War. Indeed, for almost 10 years, Moscow had to carry on a war that was unsustainable for the regime, a conflict that brought about the demonization and finally the breakup of the Soviet Empire. And neither do you regret having supported Islamic fundamentalism, which is, has given arms and advice to future terrorists? What is more important in world history? The Taliban or the collapse of the Soviet Empire? Some agitated Muslims or the liberation of Central Europe and the end of the Cold War? Some agitated Muslims? But it has been said and repeated, Islamic fundamentalism represents a world menace today. Nonsense. It is said that the West has a global policy in regard to Islam. That is stupid. There isn't a global Islam. Look at Islam in a rational manner, without demagoguery or emotionalism. It is the leading religion of the world, with 1.5 billion followers. But what is there in common among fundamentalist Saudi Arabia, moderate Morocco, militarist Pakistan, pro-Western Egypt, or secular Central Asia? Nothing more than what unites the Christian countries. Which, of course, he's right in a way, but he's uh, deflecting the question onto something entirely different. Absolutely. You guys know what the uh, original ending of the movie was supposed to be? So apparently, this is something I read online, it was supposed to be footage of 9-11, sort of showing how everything had been messed up. But the star slash producer of the movie, Tom Hanks, decided that it was a very sad sort of 
contradictory note to end the movie about essentially Charlie Wilson's heroism uh, to defend the Afghan people. So they changed it to something less dark. Yes. Instead, they changed it to this quote here that I'll read, which is Charlie Wilson saying, these things happened. They were glorious and they changed the world. And then we fucked up the endgame. And uh, fucking up the endgame, quote unquote, refers to the fact that the final scene of the movie is a congressional committee uh, debating uh, the budget for education in Afghanistan. And of course, nobody wants to foot the bill for this. So so they're just deciding that they're going to be okay with this very minuscule sum, which doesn't do much to alter the situation on the ground. And Charlie Wilson, having his Cassandra moment, warns them that if they don't pass this funding in significant amounts, then then we're going to be drawn back into Afghanistan. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, just take a step back here. And I think that this really just shows the kind of liberal perspective on Afghanistan in general, that it was this righteous, noble conflict that America had to get involved with. We had to support the Mujahideen in the 80s, and then we had to invade in 2001. But not because of against all of our perfect intentions, the war failed. We were betrayed back by allies at home and abroad, and now we've lost. And I just think that's a very kind of prescient comment. Yeah, so that, that is essentially what, what, what makes this movie a liberal uh, propaganda piece, because it shows that American involvement was that perhaps n- didn't have the best outcome, but it was ultimately motivated by good. Uh, there's this book called Real Power, Hollywood Cinema and American Supremacy, written by a British author, Matthew Alford, and he wrote that had the movie, I mean, because, because of the fact that the movie gave up its original ending, which would have turned it into a sort of criticism of American involvement in foreign conflicts and American imperialism, the movie gave up the chance to produce what at least had the potential to be the Doctor Strange love of our generation. This could have been a very critical movie, but of course, with Tom Hanks and Aaron Sorkin behind it, it had to be a propaganda piece for liberalism. Yeah, and this really follows the uh, the traditional structure of Tom Hanks' films, if we're being realistic. This triumphant boomerism of the American century in the post-war world, where America is the guarantor of good and, and the Soviet Union is this big baddie. And of course, if we hadn't stood up and de- defeated first the Nazis and then the Soviets, then everyone would be living under awful totalitarian tyranny. Particularly the Afghans. Well, yeah, that is Charlie Wilson's war. Uh, definitely a really interesting insight into the minds of so many people in the Beltway. I think that it's, a, it's, it's not a terrible movie, but I think it does have a lot of pretty abhorrent political implications that it's pretty fun to unpack. I have to say thank you so much, Kevin, for coming on this episode with us. You are incredibly talented, and you really made this really made this great. Thank you, guys. This was a lot of fun. All right. Well, this has been Gladio for Europe. We're signing off for tonight. Uh, thank you for listening, and have a great rest of your evening. <laughs>